This morning show interview was recorded back in 2010. It concerns one of the most critical issues confronting humankind, access to clean water. In the book Water, the Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization, author Stephen Solomon examines how this issue has played out in very important ways over the course of human history. He examines, for instance, how access to water was critical in the rise and fall of ancient Egypt, in the fortunes of the Roman Empire, in ancient China, and in other cultures and civilizations as well. Stephen Solomon is a journalist who has written for the New York Times, Business Week, The Economist, Forbes, and Esquire, a frequent commentator on NPR's Marketplace, the author of a previous book called The Confidence Game. Again, this book is titled Water, The Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization, published by HarperCollins. The book took me about uh, seven years in all to, uh, to research and, and write. But in a sense, it uh, also is the accumulation of a lot of uh, travels and work done over a lifetime. I mean, I've traveled uh, to many parts of the world and, and, and looked at many of the uh, water infrastructures uh, in, in previous travels as well, of course, as this, uh, this one. Um, but the truth is that in every era of world history, uh, the societies that have been prosperous have always had water infrastructures that have served their, uh, their, their needs. And in some eras, when great water breakthroughs have been made, it's been closely associated with the rise of great uh, powers and the uh, superseding of, of others, and therefore the decline of others, uh, and also great turning points in civilization. Uh, just take, for example, the uh, agricultural revolution in the very beginning of what we call civilization, which arose in Egypt, uh, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, from the harnessing of rivers for large-scale irrigation. Or fast forward to our own era and the Industrial Revolution, which, what was the great seminal invention of that, that era was the steam engine, water in another form. There was Rome and its aqueducts, and there have been canals uh, that have been very important, from uh, China's Grand Canal to our own Erie Canal, Panama Canal, Suez Canal, and, and the great challenge even of our, of our modern era, which in a sense sets the stage for today's global scarcity crisis, which was the... Uh, the giant dams, uh, the multi-purpose dams starting with Hoover that produ- provided massive amounts of uh, hydroelectricity and uh, irrigation uh, water. Uh, that became the basis of the Green Revolution that uh, really transformed uh, world society and allowed uh, the population of the world to grow from about a billion people to our current uh, six and a half billion people. And uh, as I say, that's the bit of the genesis of the idea behind this whole problem that we're running into anyway, because water has been such an important uh, economic uh, input, a vital economic input, uh, not just for agriculture, but for for all things that we do, uh, that it has grown twice as fast as world population uh, in the 20th century. And hence, today we are extracting more from nature in the way that we use it then then we can actually sustain for our current population much less the 9 billion that we're becoming so so over the course of the of these 7 years as you set about writing this this amazing account of water and its profound effect on all of these different civilizations civilizations you just mentioned and more through the course of a long history i mean did you 
yourself kind of work chronologically? Or, uh, I mean, what sorts of things did you seek out? And in some cases, are you plowing new ground in terms of looking at civilizations that we've examined a lot before, but not necessarily through this particular lens? Yeah, exactly. I I chose to do a very conventional world history. That is, look at the of the go to the classic historical textbooks, sort of condense them, if you will, into a um, into this story to tell my to be the backdrop for my narrative, but to do it in a way that looked at through the water lens uh, and say what roles did water play and how important were they in shaping the uh, these the history of these great uh, high points of human civilization and history, and oddly enough. Um, I found that almost in all the histories that I have was reading, water was always a prominent part of every historian's story, but they were always telling a, a narrower story, a particular story. So this is the first book ever to sort of pull it all together. And in a sense, you're getting a, a sweep of, of many great historians' views You know, in this book. It was actually uh, not so hard to... Uh, didn't require any any great genius on my part to do it. Just a matter of pulling the threads together, if you will. Hmm. Um, but what it, the, the point of it was was to also to try to extract certain lessons from that history, uh, and then use that to help illuminate our current global freshwater crisis, which really puts us into a whole new era and a new turning point in both water and world history. Although this is mostly. Uh a historical book and, in a sense, a sociological book and, uh, and to some extent, a scientific book. Uh, I mean, it blends all those things together, but it's, it's, it's in a sense, mostly history and, and, and economics and that kind of thing. I really appreciated how you summarize water itself uh, from sort of a scientific perspective to help us understand kind of its unique place in the natural order. Water, which you call... It has always been man's most indispensable natural resource. Just tell us a little bit about some of the qualities of water itself which make it so extraordinarily important beyond the obvious. Right, and it seems like such a simple molecule, and it, and it is, uh, but it is the... Um the molecule that, that is able to mix with every other molecule and change and transform them. Uh, it, it absorbs large amounts of heat before it heats up itself, which means that uh, the, uh, when we have wa- soil, uh, water in the soils, it prevents us from, uh, from having facing extremes like we have in the deserts, which don't have water in the, de- in, the, uh, in the soil, or absorbing heat from the atmosphere in the ocean so that our planet doesn't become like Venus. Uh, or, and, and that's been a great help in the, uh, the global warming uh, issue these days. Um, it, uh, it, it also has an, an ability, to, a very sticky ability, to stick to other molecules and climb against defy gravity. It climbs through the, the, up, the, up to tree roots, up, all the way up to the leaves. Uh, it, it climbs up our, our veins and our blood. I mean, we are 70% water, just like the Earth is. It, it is us. Uh, so there are, and it has other extraordinary capacity, uh, elements as well, and including being in a liquid, uh, solid, and uh, a gaseous form on, on the planet, the only major element to do that. And most importantly, in a way, is that it is the only really self-renewing natural resource. It does so through the natural process of evaporation and precipitation. And it is that water that recycles in a cleansed form that 
that replenishes our rivers, our lakes, and makes human civilization possible. And it's, and it's actually a very finite amount and a very tiny amount of water that we're talking about here. But every civilization in world history has lived off that, that tiny amount. Hmm. Until now, until now, we are facing that we are actually extracting more from nature than, than nature can, can, can replenish. You write, water is the planet's universal solvent, its extraordinary capacity to saturate, dissolve, and mingle with other molecules to, to catalyze essential chemical reactions makes it Earth's most potent agent of change. It is water that conveys the life force of nutrients and minerals upward against gravity to crops, treetops, and the blood vessels of human beings, water that enabled the earliest forms of life to evolve and help create the planet's oxygen-rich atmosphere, water's anomalous property of becoming less dense and more expansive as it freezes helps fracture rocks to promote geologic change and fortuitously means that an insulating layer of ice forms first over the top of lakes and rivers, protecting the water-living creatures below. I mean, and that's not even the whole list of, of all of the reasons for which we should be grateful for water. And, <laughs> and, and, and I would say this, too. I mean, uh, people are surprised when I, I ask people, how much water do you think you consume personally each day? You know, they, they are always shocked. The answer is 1,000 gallons of water a day. It's not that we drink 1,000 gallons. We drink the couple of uh, gallons that we need, you know, to, to, to hydrate ourselves. But in the food that we eat, there is uh, a hamburger, a half-a-pound hamburger. takes 800 gallons to produce because the, the cattle have got to eat all that, uh, the, the, uh, the, the grain and such, to be able to grow to that size. A glass of milk is 200 gallons. And then you think of a, something that we use. I mean, it's embedded in semiconductors and chips in our computer uses something on the order of 2,000 gallons of water to produce a tiny little semiconductor chip. Uh, in energy, we don't even think about energy and water, but they are completely interlinked. More water, we spend more water, we use more water in this country, in the United States, than we do for, for agriculture. We use 40% of our water to produce uh, thermoelectricity, mostly for cooling the uh, power plants. So there's an awful lot of water embedded in the things that we're using, and we don't think about it. Absolutely. Maybe we could talk a moment uh, about this, uh, you, what you were just touching on a, a minute or two ago, about what uh, on the surface seems strange. That is, on the one hand, we have this superabundance of water on this, which is called the water planet, and yet it is a tiny amount of all that water that, in fact is immediately accessible to us and easily accessible to us. Just paint that picture of what makes water relatively scarce and now tremendously scarce. Sure. The, uh, the, the, the reason, the, uh, first of all, 97.5% of the water is salt water and therefore um, not uh, usable by, by us and, uh, for, or for plant life, etc. Of the fresh water, the 2.5% that is fresh, uh, almost all of it is locked away in polar ice caps and in glaciers, and then there's a huge amount that is underground, uh, some of it very, very deep in the bowels of the earth, mixed in with the rocks and the dirt and, and the rest of it, um, which leaves really a, a, a very tiny fraction of uh, less, less, far, far less than 1% of the water on the planet, uh, a fraction of 1%. 
that is actually circulating on the surface or the near surface in the groundwater that, that we, we have access to. And, and a lot of it, frankly, is it's unevenly spread around the world, which is part of the answer to the question, the second part of your question. Um, you know, some countries like the United States actually have a, have a very good, uh, have, we have a lot of water. It's not always well placed for everybody. I mean, there are parts of the country that need more than, than, than we have. Um, but depending on also your relative populations, you know, is there enough? Now, there are parts of the planet, like the Middle East, that have been out of, have run out of water to, to provide the food, uh, for example, that their populations need since the 1970s, and they've been increasingly uh, food dependent. Uh, there are going to be 3.6 billion people living in countries that cannot feed themselves because they do not have enough water uh, to grow the food they need in the next 15 years, and that's going to include giant countries like India, uh, large countries like Pakistan and even possibly uh, China. Uh, China, which with its large population, is actually one of the water-scarce countries of the earth, and it is an Achilles heel of its uh, juggernaut growth. It has one-fifth the amount of water per person than we do, and an awful lot of it is so terribly polluted they can't even use it for, for agriculture. So what has, in a sense, happened, you've got to look at water both overlaid about where how it is distributed on the planet, you know, where there's an abundance and where there are shortages by natural uh, uh, distribution. And then you've got to look at the population pressures, try, people trying to, to utilize it. There's a third level, which some countries are beginning to address now, is how efficiently do you use the water you got? Because if we used all the water very efficiently, very productively, there would be enough, even for the populations that we have today. But everywhere, including in our country, we are very wasteful and, uh, and, and, and inefficient in our practices in the use of water. And what you're telling us is that we cannot afford to be, no longer. Exactly. Look, America has, uh, for America, it is, there's a choice that uh, is interesting. Um, we, we could be, and we are, a, 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 could be a water superpower. We could be a mini Saudi Arabia, however, of water for a very water-thirsty world, requiring all of the the, uh, the the food and the industrial goods that are water intensive to make, uh, if we accelerated a process of inc- of, a, of improving the produ- productive use of of the water that we've got, otherwise we we could just choose to sort of slim down a little bit, and that's the course that we've been mostly taking. But but uh, but there are countries that have been pushed to it, like Australia and and in Israel that have, that really use their water far more productively than we do. It's, we do. So there is a model for us to follow and embrace. It would immediately increase our economic growth because water is one of the most important economic inputs in our society. And it would immediately also elevate our international standing because we would be producing the vital goods that this rest of this world is going to be desperate to have on a reliable basis in the next 15 years. But our leaders are, are completely asleep to it, and it will require very difficult reforming of certain sectors of our economy, particularly the agribusiness uh, sector. Mm. You, uh, in describing this desperation, write this in, I believe, the prologue to the book, an impending global crisis of freshwater scarcity is fast emerging as a defining fulcrum of world politics and human civilization. Absolutely. Uh, Water is overtaking oil as the world's scarcest uh, critical natural resource. And, and, just as oil reshaped the history of the 20th century, 
oil and water is defining the geopolitics, the environment, the economics, and, our, and the everyday life of the 21st century. But water is actually more important than oil. It's indispensable, as you, as you alluded to before, because you can't uh, grow food with oil and you can't drink oil. So two major things are happening. The first is that we are taking so much water out of our ecosystems at the current time that many of them are on the verge of collapse. There are something like 70 major rivers around the planet that no longer reach the, the seashore, and their, and their deltas are drying up. Uh, half the wetlands are gone, and I could go down the list. But the political side of it is that the world society is polarizing into water have and have-nots. And that's a rather explosive uh, situation that is playing out in countries, for example, like Pakistan, where we have invested, you know, so much blood and treasure, really, in in in, in that country over there, and they have a an enormous water crisis. In fact, our government just in, committed seven and a half billion dollars to try to uh, to help Pakistan in the next five years. Half of that is focused on on water projects, <laughs> irrigation, hydropower, and they've got a terrible problem in that the uh, Indus River, which is their lifeline uh, a river, and supports all their agriculture, is uh, shrinking by about one-third because its source is in one of those Himalayan glaciers that are melting very quickly uh, under the global warming problems. And they're, at the same time, their population is growing 30%. So here you have a nuclear-armed state, Taliban you know, is besieged, you know, it's, it's critical to our, our interests in, in Afghanistan and the entire Middle East, and it's facing a, an enormous water crisis. Uh, that's going to rebound on us if we don't get if we don't help them meet that. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Stephen Solomon, and we're talking about his book called Water: The Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization. Let's step back at least for a few minutes from the crisis of the present day and uh, give our listeners some sense of the enormous historic sweep that is represented by your book. Your book takes us back to the very dawn of civilization and to the very important role that water played, not only in, in the rise of, of, of the first human civilizations, but uh, in the very earliest uh, empires. First of all, just say a word about how we can know what we know about the ancient world and about water's role in it. Well, I went back, of course, to, I mean, I did not do, you know, decipher hieroglyphics or anything of that sort, but uh, there have been people that have done that, and I've relied on their uh, uh, their work, of course, to, to do that. Um, but you, uh, uh, there are ample historians, uh, ample coverage of, of these periods. They've, they've been studied. Some of it is archaeological research, of course, where uh, languages haven't been deciphered going way back, but... When you start, once you start to reach the uh, the Roman world and the Chinese world, there's there's an awful lot of written material that uh, people have gone through. So that's uh, uh, that and the artifact record are the two great uh, sources. Uh, so going back a little bit farther, I mean, I, I I'll just to give you a couple of examples. I mean, to take the Nile. I mean, it, it, there's an amazing. The Nile is a great river just because it it it, it floods exactly at the right time for the uh, for the agricultural in harmony with the agricultural season and it's and its floods recede at the right time as well um, but the only thing that happened on happens on the Nile that is difficult to, um, uh, to to figure out is the size of the Nile floods and there is an there is an amazing correlation between the 
uh, ebb and flow, if you will, of the of the Nile floods over a long period of time, and the political stability uh, and unification of the Egyptian uh, ancient civilization, uh, and and it, this forth this carried forward all the way to the modern times until the 19th century, that the populate a the population levels of the Nile Valley and the uh, and the Delta always swung within about 2 million to about 5 million people, depending on whether the floods were, were good or whether they were poor. And when they were poor, the, uh, the region became ungovernable and would fracture and break up. Failed states, just as we're facing the potential of today in other parts of the world because of water scarcity. Uh, and when there was good Nile floods, the governments were able to become more centralized, were stronger, and the empires achieved their, their greatest uh, stature. That was sort of the most simple template, if you will, of the importance of water uh, and its and its meaning for for political society. But it's also true in our own era. I mean, if you think about it, think about building these very large. We, there are forty five thousand giant dams now built of the Hoover type around the planet. Half of them, by the way, in, in China, who's still going strong. But to build such such uh, such projects, you know, that really went along with strong centralized governments. I'm not going to say causality, you know, one one causes the other, but they they mutually reinforce each other. So you begin to see trends where strong government strong governments tend to be the ones that are building the these epic um these epic water projects. And in China, for example, the Grand Canal, it's 1100 miles long, about going from New York to Florida, if you will. In the early 7th century, this was completed in a matter of 20 years. Uh, there had been other canals, so they, they linked it all together. But you know, something like 5 million people maybe may perhaps even died on building this project. I mean, the government marshaled tremendous forces. But this became suddenly an artery that linked up northern China and southern China, two regions that never before were uh, had, had easy transport between them. And suddenly, all the resources of both regions, one very, very uh, arid but very fertile region in the north and the rice-growing region in the uh, and wet region in the south, but less uh, uh, good resources, came together. And that became the springboard for this great medieval society that, that, that China had uh, for, for several hundred years. I mean, they were way advanced beyond anything Europe could, could imagine. And at a certain point in history, China, as we know, famously turned inward in the 15th century. And that also correlates to the completion of a new Grand Canal when they figured that they could meet their food needs without having to go out uh, and sailing along the, uh, the, the seashores, which are less reliable uh, and pirate-infested waters. And they turned their back on the world when they could have had they had ships that were sailing the Indian Ocean that could have easily come to Europe and the United States uh, and, and, and done all the things that Europe did in the voyages of discovery uh, 80 years later. So uh, water played a, a role in history that way as well. Back to Egypt for a moment, as you describe the, the remarkable, uh, in, in a sense, gift to Egypt that the Nile was. Um, one of the things you say about the Nile is that it is a rare two-way navigable river. Yes, indeed. Uh, and what does that mean? It, it, most rivers, uh, you know, they like to take the Mississippi, for example, you know, the, you, you can only sail in one direction if you don't have, uh, because the current, you know, goes one way, and, and, and it's very hard to, to go upstream. Um, but the uh, Nile has winds that very strongly blew in the opposite direction of its current. So they, they were able to go in both directions uh, with, with sail power on, 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 the, on the return. Uh, 
So, uh, and obviously some ores as well. But uh, that that made that made political cohesion a lot easier. And and if you can control the the main river of a of a nation, uh, you you pretty much can control uh, what happens uh, politically internally. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'd like to maybe our, our your listeners might be interested in the United States because. Oh, yeah. the, well, go well, ahead. I just wanted to say one more other thing about Egypt, and then let's move to, to the United States. Uh, at some point in the book, in describing some of the remarkable uh, navies uh, which roamed the Mediterranean Sea, you draw a contrast between some of those early naval powers, maritime powers, and Egypt, which you say, in some sense, sort of shyly stuck to its own coast. And one maybe has the sense that because the Nile itself gave the Egyptians so much, that also had probably some bearing in them not feeling much in the way of of necessity or compulsion to uh, roam the seas of the world the way some of these other early civilizations did. I mean, it's not that they couldn't have developed the technology to do so, but in a sense, the very nature of the Nile itself uh, meant that it wasn't necessary for them to do so in the way that it was necessary for uh, for other civilizations. Absolutely, and it is sort of the inverse uh, principle of necessity being the mother of invention. Uh, they they had it all right in their backyard, just as we have. Uh, I was trying to make if you want to close the loop a little bit. The United States has vast you know water resources and a, and a modest population, uh, and we can we can just slim down and get by. We don't have to make these great productivity. Uh, increases in the way we use water, the way, let's say, Australia or Israel does, but it behooves us to do it. Otherwise, we do become, we do risk becoming an inward-looking society the way China did or the way Egypt uh, was uh, in the face of the opportunity to to look outward and and expand. Mm. Which, of course, uh, in in your view and probably the view of a lot of people, would be a a grave mistake on our part. Uh, I think it would be grave mistake from our own domestic growth standpoint. I think it would be a grave mistake from our international standing standpoint. Mm. Could you? Uh, I find found this very interesting. Uh, contrast, for instance, what we have just described in terms of ancient Egypt versus the uh, civilization which sprang up in the region of of uh, Mesopotamia, which you describe as a far more complicated hydrological in, environment, and uh, and so what sprang up there. Uh, was different as well. Absolutely. Uh, the, in, in Mesopotamia, the the rivers did not flood at, at the right uh, season. In fact, they flooded at the wrong time. So it required much more complex water uh, engineering to store water, uh, to build the uh, dams, to uh, uh, you know to control to contain it uh, and, and release it when you needed it. Uh, as well, the river was not a nice, tame, beautiful river that that flowed always within its uh, channel beside the flooding itself. But but the Euphrates, for example, would often change course and leave cities just high and dry. The famous city of Ur, at some point in history, just suddenly lost its water source <laughs> because it flowed in. And after a flood, it went and made a new channel and flowed in another direction. Uh, the Yellow River in China was also did that famously, and when it did, uh, the Chinese uh, civilizations would fall. Uh, the other problem that Mesopotamia had, um, and that all irrigation societies have, is that when there is intensive irrigation, it brings uh, various minerals uh, to the surface, uh, and particularly uh, salts become uh, uh, begin to contaminate the uh, the, the surface soils. Uh, sometimes there's a water logging problems as well, and that those regions become less and less able to 
uh, the ground becomes less fertile and they unable to sustain the uh, type of agriculture that they had had before. So what you see is people abandon, eventually shifting to salt um, uh, uh, salt-resistant uh, crops like barley as opposed to wheat, and then finally of having to abandon the fields and try to move up upriver or to some other newer location. And the other thing that you see in, in Mesopotamia and elsewhere in the world, in every civilization, is that power has always tended to migrate upriver. As soon as the capacity to control the water flowing downstream uh, technological capacity falls into the hands of the people upriver, they gain the upper hand in a political and military sense. And uh, so you also see that migration throughout uh, Mesopotamia as well. And we're seeing it today in the same exact region where Turkey has become the regional superpower controlling the fates of the downriver states, Syria and Iraq. We've put a lot of of blood and, and treasure into Iraq and yet it's the water from Turkey that is going to be one of the critical elements, whether they succeed or not as a society going forward. We have already mentioned uh, the nation of Pakistan, and that brings to mind one of the most intriguing passages in your book in which you describe uh, what until the 1920s was essentially an entirely lost and forgotten civilization which yeah. existed along the banks of the Indus River uh, in that region, sort of bordering modern-day India and Pakistan. Uh, tell us how such a thing can possibly be true. <laughs> well, there are many mysteries in this world. I, I, I don't know the answer. I've got the answer how it could be true, but it, these things get buried under the ground, you know, and people don't think about them. I mean, we think about the 19th century was this great era of archaeological discoveries in the Middle East, but they were made by Europeans who were looking for these uh, and were curious about them scientifically. Um, and in a sense that what happened in the Indus is, is similar. Uh, maybe the local Indians, they knew about these ruins, but they never, you know, no one ever scientifically began to look at it or had the, you know, I wouldn't say the curiosity, but didn't have the infrastructure or the, the institutional history and to, to go in and, and, and try to explore further what it all meant. Uh, but that's what happened in the 19th century, and this in the Indus was in the early 20th. And I think it was British, uh, I think the British were building a railroad, I think is what it was in, in the Indus, and they discovered, as they were digging, you know, these amazing cities, 50,000 people, one of the largest cities ever uh, that existed on the time, uh, that time on Earth. Uh, and they found a couple of them, and they had big water tank right in the middle of it. Uh, for for they're not even sure exactly whether even to this day whether it was partly a ritual bath, uh, but they also had very extensive um, plumbing networks, and they were clearly an agricultural society from other uh, other indicators. And unfortunately, uh, I think you tell us that the language which is found on some of what's been un- unearthed is undeciphered. Yes. So uh, so yes. certain questions we might have. Uh, at least for the time being, remain entirely unanswered. Uh, unanswered, at least in the linguistic form, yes. But we see patterns. Uh, you can look at the bones and you see malarial um, uh, traces of malarial uh, disease, which are often associated with irrigation societies because uh, the standing water is, very, um, is, is a vector for mosquitoes, for malaria-bearing mosquitoes. Uh, water is by far the number one source of human illness and disease. And we didn't discuss the sanitary revolution, 
Uh, but, you know, Rome's aqueducts brought in so much clean, fresh water and, and flushed it away into the Tiber uh, that that civilization grew an urban society of a million people in the ancient times, which was unheard of because cities always have been um, places where people have, have more, more have died than have been able to survive. Uh, and, and in a sense, the history following Rome's fall bore that out once again with all the filth and and and, and uh, that disease uh, keeping the city sizes very small until the 20 until the 19th century when uh England um in the in London uh started to have some some terrible um sewage problems because people started to move into the city the city was growing and there was this great event uh, called the great stink where the Thames River began to really smell bad because all the sewage was just stagnating there and they'd already suffered several cholera epidemics killing you know 20 30,000 people at a shot and and the government was unable to to mobilize itself to do anything about it but when this great stink happened it was right along the banks of the parliament where the with the british legislators met it was like as if the potomac started to stink even even more so because they were uh, next to, uh, it's not even close close to the capital as the parliament is to uh, is to the thames and the legislators were terrified uh because at that at that day and age they believed that disease transmitted through the air through miasmas bad smells and they thought they were going to get sick it took them about a month to pass sweeping reform sanitary reform that not only cleaned up London, but spread around the world and became the linchpin of the public health revolution when we began to discover the germ theory of disease and, and how to cure you know, antibacterial products uh, uh, and such, and was it one of the major transformations in human history. And it all spawned from uh, you know, how do we get rid of the sanitation uh, problem. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, one of the intriguing patterns that we see repeated over and over again, is this cycle of a civilization arising someplace. And so often the presence of water or the utilization of technology to harness water will have so much to do with the rise of that particular civilization and then comes with it uh, a dramatic growth in population and ultimately depletion of those water resources. And then whether or not that civilization deals effectively with those kind of challenges will have everything to do with whether or not that civilization ultimately flourishes or perishes. Yeah. Um, I wonder, is, is it ever tricky for us to figure out sort of what is driving what? Uh, is it the cart before the horse? Is In some cases, does a civilization begin to decline for whatever reason, and one of the first things it, it loses the ability to do is to keep on top of this matter of water, or is the matter of water often the driving force in the decline? Um, how do we unravel that particular question? I'm not sure that uh, uh, that you can always do that. Um, and I didn't try too hard in the book to do that because, you know, it could simplify, in a sense, the history. Uh, there are indicators, there are times when clearly things happen, like when the uh, uh, one of the major rivers would change its course and, and would uh, lead to, like in China, in the Han Dynasty, uh, Han Empire, back at the uh, just around 0 B.C. Uh, period, or 0 A.D., if you prefer. 
Um, and and clearly that society never quite recovered from from that major uh, uh, event where the where the uh, flooding of the yellow and then it moved some 500 miles away from the centers of civilization that had been built around it and, and left them high and dry. That that was a you know a, a kind of event that you can clearly say was an exogenous uh, impact that the society couldn't uh, handle. On the other hand, there are the uh, events in the Islamic society, which you know was 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 very was always a water deprived region and water scarce, but you know managed with to, to develop a great trading empire on the base of these camel caravans that could could tra- could could uh, transcend the, uh, the the deserts. But they had a few big irrigation regions. And when the Turks came in and took over, if you will, from the inside of uh, the Islamic uh, society, these had been nomads. And it's a little speculative, but it, it, the indicators are that uh, the historians who have written about it, that they were not quite as attentive to the, main, the maintenance of the uh, irrigation systems. And so when there was a problem that emerged uh, naturally from the from, from flooding or from irrigation canals get clogged up, they were not quite as attentive to, to repairing them. And that ultimately um, slowed their growth, if you will. It didn't, it didn't lead to an immediate collapse, but they were overtaken then uh, by uh, other societies, notably Europe at that, in that occasion. Hmm. Before we turn our attention to the modern day, I, I, I want to touch on just a couple of other fascinating points made in your book. Uh, when you talk about Rome, and the uh, innovative ways in which they harnessed water and uh, tapped into various water supplies. You talk about how they were uh, particularly adept at exploiting water uh, for the use of power and then for utilizing water also in the development of something called concrete in 200 B.C. I mean, that's one of the things I love about your book is that uh, we not only talk about the sort of obvious importance of water, right. but all the other ways in which water figures so prominently, if <laughs> invisibly <laughs> or imperceptibly, in uh, in in what springs up in our various civilizations. That's right. That goes to the uh, question you you raised before um, co- correctly. I mean, water you know mingles as we say with all things. This is why the importance of understanding this extraordinary molecule it 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 allows. It helps us create the things that um, not only build the society, but but also to move water. Uh, so this concrete, which which was was a major invention of the Romans, uh, you know, required uh, manipulating water itself in the production process. And when they were able to pour this liquid concrete, they could make enorm- they could make build structures that were huge, large, and including the aqueducts to bring the waters uh, to Rome to build these great baths that kept the society not only clean but became the center center central uh, social institution of of the Roman empire and it and and it could not have been possible probably without the invention of this early form of concrete uh, that uh, that that allowed them to uh, just simply um, uh, pour into molds this, uh, this this liquid, and when it hardened, it was uh, waterproof. I mean, it was an amazing invention, hmm. and it was light. One of the uh, great stories told in your book is of the uh, construction in the early 7th century A.D. of the Grand Canal in China, which really reshaped uh, China and, uh, and, and made possible the flourishing uh, of a people that, that were otherwise confronted by 
uh, a very difficult sort of topological conundrum mm -hmm. in terms of water being available to some and not to others. Yes. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, China uh, the, and the Grand Canal, which was the uh, completion, if you will, of canals that China had been building for, 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 for centuries, actually, into about two or, two or 300 B.C., uh, had always been important. China is the great water-moving civilization of world history. There's no question about it. America probably is second uh, uh, to China, but and, and China has a long, long history with it. But the Grand Canal allowed the the, the conundrum you're talking about is that there is a divide in China between the north and the south. If you want to think of the southwest of the United States as kind of a dry, you know, but fertile region, uh, that is that is northern China, but but multiplied by ten, a factor of ten. It is it is uh, very dry. Uh, it is got great resources, um, and 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 it's also the front lines of where the invasion invasions used to come from from the north, from the Mongols and and, and people like that. And they always needed to have uh, manpower up there to try to defend that region and to uh, develop it. And they never and every time they would be overrun, uh, they just they didn't have enough army. They didn't have enough sufficient armies, frankly, in that region to to and they couldn't sustain them because they couldn't produce the food. So what the Grand Canal did in in its most rudimentary sense was allow all this rice from the south to be shipped in a very efficient manner, along with the troops, from the south to the north. And that protected uh, the civil the uh, society for you know several hundreds of years while they built a, a great empire. Eventually, the Mongols came in in the form of uh, Kublai Khan and established their own dynasty, but they were not, they were very much um, uh, uh, turned into Chinese, adopted Chinese civilization themselves. <laughs> Uh, it took it took a couple hundred of years to do that, but so so the Grand Canal was. Um, it also allowed the first newspaper to be built uh, to be published. Uh, the Chinese invented paper, of course, modern paper printing, uh, of course, and they published a government newspaper that was then de delivered along the Grand Canal. So you could just think about what a a unifying factor that was, and this was way before Gutenberg, you know. <laughs> and of course, you you also describe a, an an amazing moment in world history and a and a mystifying moment in about 1433 when China, which was beginning to roam the seas of the world, uh, ceased that activity right. and turned inward. And had they not, had they continued to expand their reach uh, uh, over the world's oceans. Uh, the planet on which we live and who we are and what we are might be completely different. I mean, your your book touches on all kinds of intriguing questions and mysteries like this. Yeah, there of course there was a book written just on that topic um, about uh, about China. This was uh, Cheng Ho was the famous admiral, uh, uh, a, a eunuch actually, a, a Muslim uh, by religion. Uh, who was in charge of these giant treasure ships. They called them treasure uh, ships, and they were much, much larger than anything that the Europeans or anybody else could put onto the seas. And uh, they sailed uh, all the way to Africa, uh, uh, stopping along countries and uh, coasts, and they wanted all of the leaders of those societies simply to pay homage to the great emperor, the great Ming emperor in, in China. And if they did, they were bestowed with gifts. Uh, if they did not, they were uh, come. They were seized and some time and shipped back to uh, China for uh, for education, until they understood that uh, they should uh, uh, understood that the Chinese civilization was was the greatest and, and mightiest, and indeed they 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 were at the time. Hmm. And then in 1433, 
as you as you say, the emperor gave an edict and said, "We will basically no longer several edicts. We will no longer uh, uh, go out into the seas anymore, into the oceans. We will we're going to seal ourselves up." So there, there's a, there's a strong xenophobic aspect to the Chinese society uh, in any case because of uh, all the invasions and, and for other reasons. Um, and but but the one part of this book that uh, is uh, I mean this is a little speculative, but there are some historical uh, historians, Chinese historians, that have have alluded to it. So I'm not on going out on my own. But the, one of the mysteries, and I do try in the book to deal with several of the historic mysteries, uh, if you will, and look at it through the water lens and, and speculate on them. But here is why did China turn inward at that exact moment when it 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 controlled the oceans of the world? It could have. Controlled, controlled all the Indian Ocean, could easily easily have sailed into uh, the Atlantic Ocean and arrived in Europe, and Europe would have been unable to resist uh, the power of, of, of China at that stage. Hmm. And and it and it did so because, uh, in my in my mind, partly because they had just completed after many years of building a revitalized uh, Grand, the new Grand Canal. They revitalized it. It went all the way to Beijing. It solved some of the technical problems uh, that they had about filling it with water in the uh, dry in the in the drier seasons, and uh, that gave them a secure inland route to to provide all the supplies they needed from the south to the north. Previous to that, they had had to sail along the the coast, uh, along the China Seas, uh, and, and use the um, which is a less reliable uh, vehicle because of storms and because of pirates uh, to to bring the goods that the North absolutely needed. So it is a more remarkable coincidence in any event mm. <laughs> between this uh, completion of this inland network of transportation and China's decision ultimately to, to to turn its back on the world and turn inward. And for 400 years it kind of worked, but they fell behind the rest of the world as societies almost always do when they uh, fail to engage the uh, the most competitive aspects of, of human innovation. And the rise of Western civilization then uh, also circled around the matter of water and uh, literally circling in the form of, among other innovations, uh, the water wheel. Right. And ultimately uh, in Europe, the development of power by steam. This is another really great example, I think, of something that we are so quick to dismiss and take for granted, and it is of tremendous importance and uh, in, in terms of, of, of what arises and becomes possible. This is one of the um, power generation uh, energy, if you will, is one of the four great uses that water has had in world history, although we're entering into a fifth era today. There's been water, there's been uh, water for using for economic purposes. There's been water for domestic purposes like drinking, etc. Uh, there's been water for, for power generation, as, I, as we just said. And there's been water for transport uh, purposes, like we were talking about before on the canals. Uh, today we are facing the fact that we also need to put water back into the ecosystems, ecosystems themselves to preserve them so that they're healthy. But to come back to the power question, ever since this is one of the great overlooked uh, relationships, and it's really important. Water and energy should never be thought of as separate, uh, uh, separate um, uh, elements, uh, separate problems. They they are oh, have been, since the water wheel, they have been co-joined. The water wheel simply harnesses the the power of the flowing the flowing the flow of the natural flow of the rivers, and turns it into mechanical energy. Uh, the Romans and everybody used it chiefly for um, grinding grain. That 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 making the daily bread, which was for centuries and centuries the the primary task, an essential task of, of societies. Um, but 
Europeans in the 12th, uh, 11th, 12th, 13th century, uh, following a bit some of the inva- innovations made in, in China and Islamic society, but, but went farther than anybody else, began to apply it to industry, to early industry. Uh, and it was very useful even for uh, uh, heating up uh, the bellows, uh, to powering the bellows that would heat the iron, uh, uh, to, to produce the iron uh, that uh, we uh, that we ultimately created uh, many things with, many tools and such. Um, the next sort of evolution of this after the water wheel was in uh, England, as you say, was, was the invention of uh, steam power, um, when we realized that steam could do far more work than, than the water wheel. And from that, there's are natural progressions that went back to the water wheel and actually began to invent the turbine that, that then ultimately became the basis of the hydro, hydroelectric uh, power plants as the falling water from Niagara Falls and other places. Uh, rivers became uh, a source of, of power and energy. And as we said uh, earlier, the 41% of U.S. power of U.S. water use today, withdrawals from rivers, is going to cooling thermoelectric plants. Uh, uh, these are coal or, 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 or other fossil fuel-based or even nuclear power-based uh, power plants, but they use vast amounts of water. So what you see is that the water infrastructures and the energy infrastructures of our society are totally interlinked and have become increasingly so. And when we go forward and look at, you know, how do we answer our energy problems, you got to say, is there enough water? How is the water going to be used in this case? Because there are many places where, there, where the water uh, shortages will constrain the amount of energy that you can produce. Uh, and I'll give you one example. China had a major plans for coal liquefaction uh, plants up in the North, that very arid region I was describing about with so little water, and, and uh, but they have all their coal deposits there. But they had to abandon this major project in 2008 because simply because they didn't have enough water uh, to, for the, to do the coal liquefaction, which is very water-intensive. Mm. Your final chapter, of course, takes us to the present day and takes us inside the, uh, the, the really troubling sh- water shortage that is an increasing reality in so many parts of the world. And uh, there are all kinds of, of, uh, of illuminating stories. And uh, one of them is about New York City and the way in which it has grappled with this issue actually for a long, long time. And you say, uh, among other things, it is in the vanguard of the new soft path movement, which means what? Well, you know, the you can try to take the hard path is the traditional path. That is, you, you try to extract from nature uh, the more and more water resources and, and force them to do what you want to do. The giant dams being the sort of the, the modern um, uh, the modern example of those. There there is a there is another path that that says let's try to use nature itself uh, and other what we call other more efficient uses of water uh, as we try to improve uh, improve the the productivity of the water that we are using. So one of the paths is let's see what let's look at what nature does. Nature does many things that we like. It cleans it cleans water naturally. It cleans the water of pollutants naturally. It fills the ground filters it out. Wetlands filters these things out, um, and uh, they. What New York faced, in a particular example, was uh, the EPA came in, the Environmental Protection Agency, and said, you guys have, your, your water's getting too dirty, 
you got to build a treatment plant. It's going to cost eight billion dollars, but you got it. But you're uh, but you got to do it because people will get sick. Uh, New York looked at it and said, "Gosh, this is a lot of money," and they realized that if they spent one billion dollars, they could purchase all the land or a lot of the land up around the reservoir systems that were getting so polluted, um, limit the development, retrofit retrofit some of the dairy farmers and others who were producing a lot of the pollutants, uh, obviously create a lot of nice amenities for the uh, uh, in forest land, uh, which is also good for retaining water um, uh, for, for, for recreational purposes, and, and pre-filter, if you will, through nature itself, the, uh, the water before it entered the reservoirs. And in fact, this has been working for about 15 or, or more years now, it's been replicated throughout South America as a uh, in various places and other parts of the world as a as a model for the way that you can work with nature itself uh, as a almost as a almost as a piece of the infrastructure, if you will. But you've got to assign a value to 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 nature to do that. And the great movement today is, and this is the great hope, is that we will understand that that nature. Is not just a dumping ground, but it has to have a. We have to ascribe an economic value to preserving it and to cleaning it. If you do happen to pollute it, and if you begin to integrate it with a price, it will believe. At least I hope, and I believe it can be made to uh, be integrated into the capitalist um, uh, processes that have been so productive in terms of uh, of wealth production and in. Uh, uh, and in a sense, if you make the rule, I mean, my, my solution is that you've got to uh, uh, create what we call, an in, what, what Adam Smith would have called maybe an invisible green hand. That is, you want to create the incentives for businesses and others who use the resources to have to pay for the, to build in the cost of the cost of cleaning up those, uh, the pollution uh, that is generated in that process, so that it all gets integrated into the total price. And therefore, the Environmental costs will be um, uh, reflected in the co- uh, will be sorry I'm not saying this well will be reflected in the final cost and therefore will be used more efficiently and we see that happening already in in parts of the world that have adopted pollution regulations including the United States I mean there is a remarkable thing has happened in our country that no one has really observed and that is that from 1900 to 1975. Our water use grew three times faster than our population. From 1975 to the present day, it is a, our, our total water use has flatlined, while our population has continued to grow by about 30%, and our GDP continued to grow. This is a, a fantastic increase in water productivity, and it occurs largely because we passed the Clean Water Act uh, that said you have those industries to whom it was applied you have to return the water to the ecosystem in the same clean condition that you you took it out and that essentially created a cost for that uh, for that and the businesses react as business always does when there's a cost they get really serious about it and they get much more efficient and they find ways of using less water or they find ways of cleaning it that uh, they weren't doing before and it's that trend that we need to accelerate and um and and to to make ourselves even more productive, and we need to apply it to the agribusinesses who are not covered at all, and to some of the new pollutants that uh, have come in that have not been regulated. Uh, if we do that, we could 
we'll end up, I think, becoming much more efficient in our growth and having more water available for the things that we want to produce energy, to produce industrial goods, and frankly, to produce more food. Hmm. And of course, all of this that you are talking about now is so important given uh, the sobering reality that you also tell us about involving what so many people hope is sort of the magic pill or the technological panacea, as I think you describe it at one point. Uh, can't we just take all that water in the oceans and take the salt out of it? You tell us that uh, as lovely as that solution might be, it is in fact uh, a very complicated picture, and particularly in the short term, it is not something on which we can depend. Right. Yeah, it, 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 desal, desalination might become the, uh, the great new supply of, of water. No question that we have the capability to do it. It's still very expensive. It burns fossil fuels, which is, at the moment, which is bad for uh, the climate change problems. Um, and there's the problem of once you get the water onto the, uh, to, uh, once you've desalted it, you, you need to move it someplace. It's very expensive and, and uh, heavy. Water weighs eight and a third pounds, uh, 20% more than oil, and you need such, more, such large volumes of it to move that it is very uh, energy-intensive and, and very costly to do it. Um, and so, therefore, it's of limited value to move it you know, inland and over long distances, at least in the quantities you need. But the first thing is that, that, that desal... Uh, prices have come down dramatically. The technology has improved. But even if you allow the best-case scenario, uh, and that may come uh, in the next number of years, because Israel and California, their places, uh, Singapore and, and uh, Cyprus, are doing some very cutting-edge uh, work in the field, the, the amount of desal, desalinized water is so tiny, the base is so tiny, and the build-out of these plants is so to take so many years that you're not going to solve the problem in the short or intermediate term, the next 20, 25 years, at least. Uh, and we're going to face places, we're facing places around the world, like in, like in, for example, in India, where they've been pumping groundwater for, to provide the food that they need, and they're now hitting bottom. I mean, you know, these places are out of water, and 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 people need to eat tomorrow, and those countries are, need to hold together. The big danger today is, you know, these failed states. And said, and desal might get there, but it's not there yet. Um, and, and, it, and it's not, as you say, ready for prime time, um, right in the short time when we need it. Um, the other topic I did want to just touch on briefly is, is, is the evolution of United States history, because you, you can look at, you know, if you want to look at this historical question, uh, uh, of, of what makes looking at history through the lens of water unique. Uh, you know, our, our own country offers a very interesting example because we had, we really have three hydrological regions in the United States. And you could see that the conquest, if you will, the, the, the control, the, the harnessing of that water, that potential in each of those regions required different solutions. And when we did it, it led to enormous growth um, uh, and, and really the rise of the United States. And I'm first talking about the, the eastern part of the United States, which is a rainy area with um, very fertile land and, and good agriculture. Uh, it has rivers that are navigable and were, were pretty high and good for generating water power. And we harnessed that uh, very early on through the building of uh, some factories. Uh, for example, you think of Lowell, Massachusetts, and the great textile factories. Uh, we were able to build the Erie Canal that linked the, uh, the, the East Coast to, through the Great Lakes, through 
all the way down to the Mississippi Valley and and managed to uh, merge the resources of that you know the tremendous resources agricultural resources of the Mississippi with the uh, with the uh, with the eastern uh, coast and then the trading uh, networks um, and so th- there was so that was one you know sort of a problem to solve and, and the United States did that brilliantly but our history could have ended right there <laughs> and, 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 but the next region was sort of our seascapes our, our both our trading and our naval power and when we invented the uh, Erie the, the Panama Canal or invented it when we built it uh, against tremendous odds uh, the, the French had failed to, to had been unable to do it and they were the very advanced society um, you know we suddenly linked our east coast to our west coast and all of the resources that were available uh, there were suddenly transportable by boat and very inexpensively and we of course we had a, a great navy at that point too and were able to extend our reach uh, uh, globally and then we were faced with the problem of the west which was a in, you know is an arid region and and you look at the history you I think you're you know just from local politicians uh, local writers as far as you know is Frederick Jackson uh, 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 Frederick Jackson Turner was writing on the frontier thesis, and he was moaning about the problem of how do we deal with this West that that you just can't go and 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 settle a small po- plot of land out there like we did in the East because there's not there's no water, and he realized that there was going to have to be massive irrigation projects, and it took quite a while, but we got the Hoover Dam and the um, and all the dams that followed it. Uh, producing both the hydropower and the irrigation, and that really launched our western region. And today, I argue that we face a fourth challenge, and it's how to now use all the resources that we, the water resources that we've got, in a way that is going to be more productive than we have than we're using them uh, today. Uh, to um, uh, to do it in a way that is going to be ecologically. Uh, sustainable, so that our ecosystems have enough water in them to produce uh, the the volumes that we need for any kind of society. And you're beginning to see that. Uh, uh, groups getting together, even on the Klamath River just recently, they've, they've gotten together. And sometimes you have to say, or the Great Lakes, uh, the Great Lakes Compact. I mean, you say, sometimes you have to say, we have to take care of the ecosystem, but it means that everybody may have to use less of the water but we're going to then, therefore, be have incentives to use it more efficiently. Right. And, of course, uh, I'm speaking to you from just south of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Right. And, and uh, almost within view of Lake Michigan, one of those so-called Great Lakes. And, of course, the, the fact that this agreement was crafted between uh, the bordering states of the Great Lakes to uh, seek to protect this resource speaks volumes about how differently we view a resource like water now versus even 30 years ago. Absolutely, and it's, of course, very controversial, uh, and, and, and it also shows that the politics of water is coming to the United States. I mean, the, the Great Lakes Compact, which was ratified by Congress in 2008, essentially says we're going to work to clean up the Great Lakes, which is a great thing, but it also says we don't want to, that water is not to be exported outside of the basin, if I'm uh, correct on that. And that's under, very understandable. It's a, it's a critical economic resource, as you say, and people beginning to recognize it. But it also shows that other parts of the country, like Texas, like New Mexico, et cetera, have their eye on every available water source. Rather than doing the hard things that they should be doing, 
which is to live within their their as much as possible anyway live within their limitations of their ecosystems uh, and the amount of water produced there by being more efficient. Uh, that's what's going to be starting to play out more and more. I mean, we just saw in the southeast, for example, uh, the state of Georgia, which was running short of water because of a, of, a, of the drought, tried to move its state border one mile uh, so that it would border the Tennessee River and could take water out of the Tennessee River. And then it tried to sue uh, Alabama and Florida to get more water out of the, the rivers that they commonly share. I mean, you know, this was all in lieu of having built proper water infrastructures over the last 30 years. And so they were they were squeezed. Mm. So this is hitting us close to home in more ways than one. And of the story will only become more important. And in a sense, your book will become only more valuable over time. The book is Water, The Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization. It is published by HarperCollins. It includes photographs and illustrations and much more that we did not even get to touch on in the course of this lengthy conversation. Stephen Solomon, I so appreciate you crafting this important book and for joining me today on The Morning Show and being so generous with your time. I thank you most sincerely. Well, I thank you uh, very much for, for very wonderful questions and for the time you've uh, allowed me.